Respectfully, no. Hey there, hellgoers. Hi, Lizzie. Hi. It's so good to see you. Um, so this is Lizzie. Lizzie and I met, oh my gosh, how many years ago was it now? Um, 11 or 12? No, it wasn't. Was it 2010 or 2011? Oh my gosh. So this it was, was at, at summer camp, at our leadership camp. Uh-huh. So, wow. So before so, my junior year was the summer of 2010. So we met in 2010, so that's 12 years ago, <laughs> which is crazy. Um, Wild. And then we ended up going to the same college, mm-hmm. which was also a wild time also wild (laughs) (laughs) so that's crazy we met at our christian well we we went to the same christian college then (laughs) yeah just life paths casually intertwining again yeah well also we both were in education spanish education specifically which is kind of funny yeah um we have quite a few crossovers in that and we are also from a very similar area in Pennsylvania originally, mm-hmm. which is also funny. Um, we lived like very close that. to each other. Um, yeah. So we have had some very crazy crossover experiences. I can't believe we've known each other for uh, like a whole dozen years now. Yeah. Um, but tell me a little bit about what you're doing now with your life. Like, where are you? What are you doing? Tell me a little bit. This is such interesting timing. Yesterday, I got an offer for a job. Um, so, yes. Um, we love job I offers. Will be, they're so great. Um, I will be working in, um, like, the HR department doing, like, new hire orientation, revamping yes. the whole orientation program, and then, like, onboarding people and getting people comfortable with the company and things like that. That's awesome. Yay, congrats. So exciting. Thank you. I'm so excited. <laughs> Another uh, former educator, and we now mm-hmm. care about our health and safety. <laughs> yes. Oh, my goodness. Um, so it's so good to see you, and I'm excited because today we're going to talk a little bit about neurodivergence. Um, mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic in relation to the church because obviously so many people have had so many different experiences. So we're going to talk about your personal experiences today with neurodivergence. Are you able to give a general definition, like when people say neurodivergent and we're talking about Mm -hmm. neurodivergent versus neurotypical, um, can you Mm -hmm say like a little bit of what those words generally mean so that people can kind of follow along. Yeah, so um, different people have different definitions. The most broad and and like inclusive definition of neurodivergent, um, people would, you could say like anybody with like brain differences. So like neuro like brain divergent like differences. Um, So a super general definition would include um, things like depression and anxiety, um, and it could include things like OCD, things like that. A more strict definition might specifically focus on autism, ADHD, OCD, PTSD. Um, so Mm. it depends, like the, the breadth of the definition kind of depends on the person, but in general, it's like brain differences. So in my particular case, autism and ADHD. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that, because when people hear things like neurotypical, 
people often use the word normal. Oh, so normal mm-hmm. people. Um, mm-hmm. And that's something that makes people who have brain differences feel ostracized or excluded from the general mm-hmm. population of people. That's where people start to think that they are weird or abnormal um, and then are less likely to talk about it. So the language that mm-hmm. we'll be using today, neurodivergent, neurotypical, so that we can mm-hmm. get on the same page about lots of people have brain differences and there is not mm-hmm. a normal versus weird. Uh, we all have our own brains and we've all responded differently to all of our experiences. And so we're gonna talk about mm-hmm. Lizzie's experiences today. And I'm so excited. Yeah that you get to share with us because I am super interested in your perspective and the things that you've gone through. So let's talk a little bit about uh, your church background. So where did you come from? What would you like to share with us about what your experiences were like growing up and where you got now? So I (laughs) I can't lie and say from birth or like since forever, because technically it wasn't forever, in preschool, my family started attending a church. Okay. Um, it was like I, I attended the preschool at that church, and then they invited all of the come to vacation Bible school. So we did that. So I was like three years old. And then um, everybody at vacation Bible school was invited to come to the Sunday service where we all like performed the songs that we learned. Um, so my family came to that service and the sermon was particularly moving for my parents, and suddenly we were full-fledged members um, of this United Methodist Church. Um, mm-hmm. And for context, it was a predominantly white congregation and relatively conservative. It wasn't like explicitly conservative, um, but everybody kind of seemed to be of the same mindset without the without specific political affiliation being discussed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it had that, it had that same vibe. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I was in it for the long haul. Um, I mm-hmm. was in the youth group. Um, I, I've heard like in your other episodes, like going to church multiple times a week, multiple different yep. situations where I'm just like constantly there, constantly embedded. Um, and like the it girl of the church and of the youth group in some ways, like, yes, I, Like, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to do it well. So full commitment. Um, And we had, like, a really big church or youth group, too. There were were probably, Mm. like, 15 people in my grade alone. So, like, that was pretty amazing to begin with. Like, we were just constantly bringing friends, the whole thing. Like, full-on evangelizing to the friends and bringing them to church every step of the way. Oh, yeah, like, we did. We wore, like, T-shirts every Wednesday. Like, we we were very. (laughs) Yes. Yep. Yep. Oh, my goodness. I I have this distinct memory of like a school field trip and I have this neon green shirt on that says, follow God. And it was like a Bible school shirt from the year prior. And I thought I was the coolest thing. Absolutely. You had to be a Jesus freak or you were nothing at all. (laughs) Yep. hundred percent. So, yeah. And the journey kind of continued for me to make a long story short. All of the trauma in my life compounded into a couple of hot messes and um, through recovery of those, like through recovering from like an eating disorder and self-harm and all these sorts of things, I was like, well, dang, if God can do all of this for me, then I need to be like 
preaching his word and like communicating mm. this to other people to be able to provide the same care for others. Um, so I started the process to um, like thinking I was going to be a pastor in the United Methodist Church, um, yeah. which like seems radical to some, but like at least in the United Methodist Church, it was acceptable for AFAB people, for people assigned female at birth to um, preach. So I originally went to our college as a religious studies major, yep. double majoring in Spanish because I needed to be capable of mission work. Um, Absolutely. You have to go and preach the gospel in all the lands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. the whole deal. So, um, <laughs> yeah. And things have drastically changed since then. Um, but that was kind of the path that I was on uh, my spiritual resume, if you will. Yes. Oh, I love that spiritual resume. We have a long list of things, don't we? Um, so now, since things are drastically different, are you involved in church in any way now? And how do you currently identify in your spiritual journey? Um, I am not involved in any churches now. Um, I've since moved to Baltimore and I adore it here. I found Yay. an incredible church in like a neighboring city i found this incredible church and i tried so hard to commit there this church Mm. is um uh culturally diverse there are people there are like like immigrants from different places involved in this church this church is racially diverse this church Mm. has like gender diversity and sexuality diversity like all of these things this church is genuinely incredible the pastor is so warm and kind and loving and regardless of that, I still had a panic attack every time I went. Um, wow. So I am not currently churched. I have no intention of being churched um, in any time in the near future. Um, yeah. I leave space that like those, like the whole belief system, entirely possible. Like I leave space for that because yeah. I don't think I know better. Yeah. I just know yep. that my body is not comfortable in those environments. So I won't go. That's a great point to make that your spiritual journey doesn't have to equate with your body being in a physical space. I think Mm -hmm. that lots of people equate being in a church or being churched around other people as you are a quote unquote good or better Christian or whatever denomination that people subscribe to. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. And I love that you put it, you don't necessarily know better, so you leave space for that. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that it's important for people to know that you can go on that spiritual journey on your own. And you, wherever your body is most comfortable, you can go on that journey for yourself. Mm -hmm. So now we're talking a little bit about neurodivergence today. And we're going to use the broader definition and talk kind of about the different pieces from mental health to autism. So... Mm-hmm. Everyone's mental health journey is very different. I've talked a little bit about mine um, and kind of my journey to different diagnoses and going to therapy, things like that. Um, but for you and your mental health journey, I know you already mentioned a little, like touched briefly on some things that you went through when you were younger. What was that journey like for you? Um, so spoiler alert, um, a lot of people, including a lot of practitioners, are unaware of how autism can show up in people who are assigned female at birth as compared to people who are assigned male at birth. Mm, okay. um, so 
so I don't fault um, or I don't like hold a grudge, I suppose, against any of the practitioners who diagnosed me with other stuff first. Mm. Um, but this is going to be like a long list of what amounted in my personal experience to fake diagnoses because people didn't know what I was actually experiencing and I didn't wow, know okay. mm -hmm. either. So I've been anxious and depressed since like forever. And that's just kind of like standard operating practices in some ways. Yeah. Um, but around 16, I couldn't cope and fell into like self-harm and an eating disorder. So I started therapy mm -hmm. around 17. Um, by 18, I was officially diagnosed with depression, anxiety, and OCD. So okay. now it's official. Now I'm like, whatever. Um, I started medication for depression then. Um, so this was like my first year of college. Then... By 19, I had tried like multiple medications, multiple um, depression medications specifically. Um, and one in particular made me worse instead of better um, mm -hmm. and landed me in the psych ward for a week. Um, I, I say that term affectionately. I know that's not a term that everybody likes, um, but I was inpatient psych for a week um, where because I just needed to be out of college, yeah. have the medical excuse, get on new medications where I'm safe, and then go back into it. Um, but that was where I was diagnosed with ADHD and also bipolar mm. 2. Okay. Um, so for the next eight years, from like 19 through 26, 27-ish, <clears throat> I was treated with antidepressants and mood stabilizers, yep. but none lasted for longer than like a year, like none would be helpful for longer than that oh, length of time. Oh, interesting. So like the effects were wearing off essentially. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes they wouldn't even work from the, to begin with. Cause like a lot of it is guesswork, um, mm -hmm. educated guesswork, but nonetheless guesswork. Um, mm -hmm. so nothing was truly effective. And then the TikTok algorithm happened and Listen, I started so content. <laughs> It is. I, I feel personally victimized by my TikTok algorithm. Yep. Um, so I started seeing content from a lot of ADHD creators, which made sense. I was already diagnosed with ADHD. Sure. Um, and then there started being this like crossover situation happening where I started hearing from like, this is my ADHD and this is my autism kind of thing. Like this is yep. like as an autistic, this is manifesting. And as an ADHD person, this is. And I'm like, wait a second, that kind of fits. <laughs> but like, don't worry, y'all. Don't worry, y'all. I did not use TikTok as the only source of information for this. No, like, please don't come for me. Um, but I started, <laughs> I started Googling extensively. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I found a couple resources, which I don't know if that's a thing that we can like link resources. Yeah. But yeah. Okay, cool. I'll send you links. So um I found a bunch of resources about autism in AFAB people and people who are assigned female at birth and holy crap, it started to really fit. Like like mm. the shoe really fit, like the whole Cinderella thing. Yep. Like it, 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 yep. You're like, oh yes, so I, also me, yeah. great. <laughs> oh yes, indeed. So then I um, started seeking out like clinicians, like diagnosticians who could potentially make this a formal diagnosis and like be an outside party to make this call for me. Um, mm, yeah. And they, uh, something that was really important to me was that the clinician could tell me the difference between autism in men and women. And if they couldn't tell me that, I did not continue with the appointment because I didn't trust that they would actually understand. Because I, for example, I am not obsessed with trains. 
I'm not. I don't care about trains. They're cool. And in a public transportation way, I do feel passionately that we should have access to trains. However, <laughs> I love this. it's such a stereotype that like all yes. white autistic boys love trains and it's literally a question on some diagnostic exams. No, it's not. I don't care about trains. I, I, I wish I were making this up. Wow. So, yeah. <laughs> so... So, so if a, if a doctor couldn't tell me, oh yeah, some women or AFAB people like experience autism in this way, then I didn't trust them to make this. So I did end up finding somebody who was out of state. So I had to wait like five months for an appointment. Um, wow. But the funniest thing happened when we signed on to the Zoom call. I had already taken like the evaluation exam, and he yeah. was just going to like review it with me in this call. Sign on to the Zoom call. I'm playing with my hair. First thing this man says to me, this this acclaimed doctor in his field, first thing this man says to me, ah, I see you've adopted the socially acceptable stem for AFAB people who are autistic. Because I was playing with my hair and he like saw it immediately. Wow. And then in my response to him, so the very first sentence I said, I don't remember exactly what I said. I was like, oh, really? Like it's something like stammering, whatever. But he noticed my speech pattern and was like, ah, and you have pedantic speech. Yeah, I think you probably are autistic, but let me check the diagnostic results. Pulled up the the exam itself. And he was like, yes, this was the easiest diagnosis. So like 60 seconds. Literally, like, like in a completely non-exaggerated way, this man could call it out in that time. And I've gone 28 years of my life with no one having any idea. So you were 28 when you had that appointment with that doctor? Yeah. I, it was like a week away from my 28th birthday. So basically, yes. That's crazy that in all of that time, all of these other diagnoses came in related to your mental health, essentially. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this person can speak mm-hmm. to you in 60 seconds and know that there's a different type of neurodivergence mm-hmm. happening. And... Mm-hmm you functioned essentially for your entire childhood to adulthood, not knowing Mm -hmm. that this was something that could have essentially helped you function in Mm -hmm. your personal and professional life. Yeah. It's, it's truly wild. And that's something that I'm still like talking through in therapy, but like, yeah, I love therapy. I love therapy. Yes. So it's, it's wild in the sense that like, all this time I've been trying to like overcome these different diagnoses, not overcome, but like trying to like cast my cares on him for God cares for you. Like all of these sorts of things, like, like I've been trying to do this and all along it hasn't even been that, like that wasn't even my experience to begin with. So like, I couldn't even, it wouldn't have worked anyway, because that exactly, even if we're talking in religious language, God made Mm -hmm. you this way. And you were Mm -hmm. trying to change it, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so now I I heard you mention how long you had to wait for an appointment with that particular doctor Mm -hmm. that was able to help you. Can you talk a little bit about a formal diagnosis with a doctor like that versus a self-diagnosis and particularly in the autistic community, because it's something that Mm -hmm. is talked about in the autistic community? Formal diagnosis is unfortunately incredibly inaccessible. Um, It's not something that is cheap. It's not something that there are, there are a lot of people who are broadly qualified for. um, And it's hard to, it's hard to 
define exactly, but um, the vast majority of the research done on autism in general is done on young white boys. So mm. someone who is not a young white boy who is like someone who is autistic who is not a young white boy is less likely to receive an accurate diagnosis because the research is not focused on them. The research is focused on these young white boys. So mm. then, so like short grows into like white boy teenagers or like white male, white adult males, like, right. but that is the lane that has the research right now. So self-diagnosis becomes increasingly important. Now, self-diagnosis with reason, self-diagnosis with justification, self-diagnosis with thought and consideration, of course. Um, seeing one TikTok does not a self-diagnosis make. However, um, the prevalence of self-diagnosis is born directly of the inaccessibility of formal diagnosis. Um, and I think it's really important that that stay valid and like say something that we consider with esteem because it's not something that people come to lightly. I was not someone who was desperately seeking, yes, please label me as something disabled. Like, right. yes, please, I want to be autistic or yes, please, I want to be disabled in this way. Because to be honest, it is a disability in some ways. I do think it benefits me in a lot of ways, but it's also still classified as a disability. So like, it's not something I'm seeking. Yeah. But at the same time, if that's what's accurate, then that is what I want. Um, so there's there's got to be space for both self and formal diagnosis, in my personal opinion. I like that you said you want what is accurate. And mm -hmm. I think accuracy and knowing these things about yourself, I'm thinking about my own personal experience and how it took until I was 28 to be diagnosed with bipolar 2. And mm -hmm. I wish there were things that I had known because the accuracy is what helped me then look at myself through a lens that made me make sense to myself. And mm -hmm. I'm sure it's the same thing with the autistic community that once you have the lens, all of a sudden mm -hmm. you make sense to yourself and you're no longer yes. so frustrated with figuring out why am I this way? Why do I respond this way? Now you can look at it through mm -hmm. a lens and say, oh, because this is the way that my brain works, <laughs> this is how mm -hmm. I function around people or in these types of situations. And you can exactly. use coping skills like coping ahead and prepare for things that might mm -hmm. make your brain that's hardwired a particular way trip out in certain mm -hmm. circumstances and you can be prepared for those things. Exactly. And that's, I think, something that's really important with self-diagnosis too, is that like, the supports that I might use as someone who is autistic and formally diagnosed can help other people too. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't want the supports or the coping skills or the awareness of those coping skills to be limited to people with formal diagnoses. If something helps someone else, why not let it help them? Like, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't want to gatekeep something like that. I would rather have that be abundantly clear because truly the diagnosis was a pair of glasses that made it so much clearer to see myself. Yeah. Um, so I wouldn't want to keep that from somebody else. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think that generally with neurodivergence, there are things because of money, resources, whatever, that are maybe unintentionally gatekept from people. 
Mm-hmm. And so it's great that you're sharing essentially that if it helps you, it helps you. And we mm-hmm. don't want to keep that from someone if it's a coping skill that could improve their ability to function. Um, Definitely. So speaking about neurodivergence in relation to the church, did you ever feel like mm-hmm. that ostracized you in any way? And what was that experience like for you? Because you, you, were, you were committed to the church mm-hmm. and that's where like your career path was going. So what was, what was that experience like for you? Um, I was kind of constantly in a state of just like confusing everyone, not on purpose, <laughs> but like, I think people just didn't really know how to take me, which mm. I mean, we now know is because I was autistic and just functioning differently and not reading the same social cues. But right. like, I, it really confused people because I, I was so good at masking or like, it's a term that we use for like acting neurotypical or like acting quote unquote normal, or yep. I like to call it standard issue. I'm acting like I have the standard issue brain when actually <laughs> I have the autistic person. Um, but like, so I've, I was masking this whole time. Nobody knew that I was mm. like engaging in these like harmful behaviors or anything like that um, until until my senior speech. We did senior speeches. Did you do senior speeches in your church? We didn't do, uh, we did them in our, in our youth group. We had a senior night. Mm, okay. Okay. Yep. So for ours, it was like, it was like youth Sunday and like the entire oh, yep. youth group mm-hmm. would like take over and like we would run the service, but the seniors that year would be sharing testimony in place of a sermon. Um, yep. So, uh, so I did that, um, and went hard and told them all of the, not like, not like in bad details, but like I mentioned that like my journey included self-harm and an eating disorder at, at that point. Um, and how like God had made it something good. I quoted Romans eight twenty eight, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according Obviously. to his purpose. The whole thing. So all that to say, I confused everyone because they didn't like, they didn't know all of this was happening. And then I came out as like saying all of this in like the youth Sunday presentation. And it's like, oh, wait, Lizzie was going through all this stuff all along and none of us had any idea. Mm. And then, I don't know, they didn't really know about it until I was like clawing my way out of everything though, so. Yeah, so you essentially functioned as neurotypical so that people Mm -hmm. didn't know what you were going through, which I think Mm -hmm. is a common coping skill for lots of people that like, if no one can see, then Mm -hmm. I'm doing fine. Um, Yeah. But in that process, did you gain any misconceptions about your mental health from the church or um, about neurodivergence in general? Or was it because like you were masking that that wasn't really a factor for you? I had trouble with this in the time, which like reflecting back now, I can see it a little more clearly that like none of the solutions that were proposed by the church. Oh, what's the, what's the verse about like, Tomorrow will worry for about for tomorrow oh, will worry yep. about itself. Uh, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough worries of its own. Mm-hmm. So like, like none of those sorts of things were working for me because what I wasn't, because what I was experiencing I was right. not. Well, yeah, I mean, in fairness, it doesn't always work for those with anxiety either. Um, but like, what I was experiencing wasn't even anxiety; it was an right. autistic need for things to be a specific way. So yes. it wasn't that I couldn't worry about it it's that like no like my brain physically needs this to happen or my brain will be on edge until this thing happens um 
so the what the perception that came from that then was that I was not faithful enough. Yep. If their solution to the problem that we both perceive as the problem, because I didn't know any better at the time, if not is not is not working. If this is a solution and this is not working, this is capital T truth and it's not working. I must not be faithful enough. Mm-hmm. And it kind of started a downward spiral, but like it's fine. <laughs> we, we love the spiral that leads us to a dramatic conclusion. Nothing if not drama. But um, yeah, so it, it it became a crisis of faith in some ways because then yeah. I was not doing well enough. I, I internalized yeah. it as my own fault instead of seeing so many systemic barriers in place. Well, and the the thing that hinges on that concept is that you're looking at it as your ultimate salvation. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I need to get this right or else. Mm -hmm. Like it's a very, that in in and of itself is anxiety inducing that if Mm -hmm. I can't get this right in this life, I only get one and then I am lost forever. And so, It is dramatic. <laughs> like it and is. it's it's not drama for the sake of drama. It's it's what was taught to us that you, mm-hmm. we need to get it right in this life. And if I'm seeing all these warning signs in my neurodivergent brain, I'm reading it mm-hmm. as I'm doing something wrong as a bad mm-hmm. Christian. And if I don't mm-hmm. get this right, I am going to hell. Like, it, there yes. was no other option. Like, my church wasn't, right. like, a purgatory church. It was Heaven's mm-hmm. Gates or Hell's Flames, and those are your two options. And mm-hmm. so I was always scared that because mm-hmm. all these things were going on in my brain and I wasn't functioning, quote-unquote, normally, I was always anxious. And everyone always told me, fear isn't from God. You shouldn't feel afraid. And I was like, I feel afraid mm-hmm everywhere I go so either I had mental health issues or I was like what demonic pick one like right (laughs) and so it is it's it's um it makes you feel like you did it wrong and Mm -hmm. in reality what you were going through was a different hardwiring of your brain Mm -hmm. yeah it was really easy to not be aware of that, internalize the wrongdoing as my own deficit, work even harder at the thing that I was giving my all to, and then internalizing the deficit yet yet again. Like it was this compounding cycle. cycle. Yep. Yep. When we attend churches and we listen to sermons, they tend to say the same messages over and over and over again. They really try and drive home particular points often Um, either implicitly or explicitly driving home points, depending on what they talk about. So what did the church teach you, whether implicitly or explicitly, about culture or the way you lived your life or the way you made decisions? For context, I'm gay, like a whole raging homosexual. And (laughs) I I didn't figure that out until college. Um, It took me a while to kind of catch on. But... um, My church growing up was never overtly like gay is bad, gay is a sin, blah, blah, blah. Like there were no, there was no like rally like that. There was no, 
there were no explicit sermons about queerness or anything like that. Um, There was just the consistent inundation of youth group to married to procreating pipeline. Um, So they didn't like explicitly teach me being gay is bad, but I implicitly learned what I was supposed to do. Um, And there's an interesting like intersection here with being autistic and like viewing it through that lens. There were copious social cues um, indicating a whole host of different like cultural norms within the church um, that I just didn't comprehend. Like I they were completely lost on me um, because social cues are a thing that autistic people tend to struggle with. It's just not like if if you're trying to communicate with something with me, please do so explicitly because I will not catch on otherwise. Um, with that, I learned through patterns. Um, yeah. Cause autistics are also really good at like pattern recognition. Um, so I learned through patterns and through like the consistency of messaging hmm. what I was supposed to be and what I wasn't supposed to be. Um, wow. so it's kind of interesting that like, despite not catching on to a specific interaction, the pattern was so consistent that it was impossible even for an autistic to miss the subliminal. Wow. So you're saying that even if your church never explicitly said, uh, homosexuals are all going to hell, we need to Mm -hmm. fix all the gays, there was no signs and rallies and burning rainbow flags, you as an autistic person still learned the mm-hmm. purity to procreation pipeline that needed to exist. <laughs> okay, love that phrasing, but yes, that's absolutely what happened. And you didn't need to recognize social cues. It was just this pattern of, of speech and what was talked about and the examples mm-hmm. of people that you saw. I'm sure there were couples in your church, married couples in your church with children and all of those things. Those exactly. are the only things you saw. And you were like, well, then that's right. what I must be. Yeah. The closest. Now I don't, I don't have a close enough relationship with the women that I'm about to reference to say definitively what their life path was, but yeah. I knew of elderly women in my church or like not even just elderly like older and elderly women in my church who were single and who had always been single and I learned like through just over time and through interactions that like that's just the alternative option like maybe I don't want to get married to some guy maybe I don't want to have kids this is your option so there was never any like go be gay and have a happy life happy wife it was like, yeah, you can you can be single or you can get married and have kids, get straight married and have kids specifically. Interesting. Yeah, because those are when those are the only examples you see and you're a child. What other options mm-hmm. do you find for yourself? There aren't any. Yeah, I didn't know to create other options. That's really interesting to know that patterns in churches and the way that they function are so consistent that essentially many different neurotypes could pick up on them. In your journey through neurodivergence, what has helped Mm -hmm. you the most? And what have you appreciated most about 
the metaphorical coming to the other side of recognizing who you are on that journey? Knowledge in general has been incredibly helpful. Like the awareness of this is my diagnosis and this is how it manifests has been incredibly helpful. Um, But with that also, um, wow, I guess it's been 12 years that I've also been in therapy. So like, also just like being in therapy is really incredible and really helpful. I, and I, I'm realizing with my current therapist that we do, we, she and I do therapy differently than she might with like another client. Um, Mm. in the sense that a lot of what we do is talk through, this is the situation and how I experienced it. And she can provide insight as to like, maybe this was what people were thinking, or maybe this was what the like neurotypical reaction might be. Um, and then we discuss like how the difference and the disparity between the reactions, um, like how that manifested in my life and like how that impacted me. Mm Um, so it's therapy, but it's not the same as what I've experienced prior to an autism diagnosis and knowing like what is most helpful. Now that you have diagnoses, whether formal or self-diagnoses, and you can look back at your church experience through that lens, what, as an autistic, what was your perception of yourself in relation to the church at first, so before you knew this stuff about yourself, um, and how has your self-love and self-acceptance changed over time, being able to look at it with that lens? It makes me think of, there's a meme, it comes from a scene from Schitt's Creek where the mom says something about like looking back on yourself at kinder eyes. Yeah, it's so good. But she, she talks about like, Okay, so I think the scene is actually about, like, taking a bunch of naked pictures of yourself, which, (laughs) if you want to do that, live your best life. Like, I'm not going to be the one to stop you. Um, But, like, but she talks about, like, how you're going to look at yourself with much kinder eyes when you're, Mm. like, older and, like, having grown past a situation. Um, And that's what I think about in my journey with, like, the autism diagnosis, but also with like religious trauma, like I look back and I see that I was doing the best I could, um, that I was trying my hardest, that I was doing everything that I was taught to do with fidelity. Um, and it still wasn't working. And, and at the time I was just devastated by the, the lack of results that I was getting from such tremendous effort to be who the church wanted me to be. Um, But now in retrospect, I just have such kinder eyes for Mm. little me who was, who was doing their best to, to be everything that they were taught to be um, and to be everything that they thought they were supposed to be. Um, And now it's, now my like process is more focused on how can I provide that same kindness that I gave to past Lizzie? How can I provide that same kindness mm. to present Lizzie? Um, and because of that, Bryn, my therapist, is going to have a job for the rest of her life and journey. Um, <laughs> but I'm here for it. I feel like people uh, who are in therapy talk quite a bit to their inner child and Mm -hmm. 
the experiences that past you has gone through. And I like how you said it's easier, essentially, to provide the kinder eyes to little you, but how can you do the same to the you that exists now? And Mm -hmm. it does, for me, feel hard and uncomfortable sometimes to provide the same kindness and self-love to the me that sits here. But I think it's Mm -hmm. important to talk about like your personhood has existed and will continue to exist. And so being kind to yourself can only help your body that Mm -hmm. keeps the score. (laughs) It really does. If it could not, that'd be great, but we'll keep working with it. Yeah, I would appreciate for my body to be done keeping track of things. Thank you. Anything else that you would like to share in general about these experiences or any words of encouragement to the neurodivergent community? I know there are lots of people, I'm sure, who have either struggled to find a church community that they fit into or similar to your experience, maybe their body is not comfortable in that space. Um, So -hmm. anything that you'd like to say about any of those things? Yeah, so I'm, I'm learning how important it is to trust my body and to mm. know that like, even if my brain doesn't remember exactly what situation is making me feel whatever way in this current situation, um, yeah. like whatever from the past is making me feel this way now, um, I'm learning the importance of trusting my body. And that's not something that I was ever taught in the church. Um, yeah. I was taught that the flesh is sinful, that I need to die to self mm. and pick up the cross. and that I am a fallen, simple human who is bound by sin and flesh, not that I am my own flesh, I guess. Um, So learning to honor the experience that my body is having. Um, So whether that be like a panic attack when I go into a sanctuary or whether that be um, like feeling uneasy when I drive past like my home church growing up when I'm like back in my hometown, like I I'm learning to honor that and listen to my body. And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we're going to live in our trauma responses forever. And that doesn't mean that I'm Mm -hmm. creating infinite space to um, like allow all of those things to manifest. Like we're still, I'm still working through them in therapy. I'm still dealing with all of these things, but like, it's okay for me to listen to my body too. And I didn't know that when I was in the church. I thank you for that because I never made that connection even for myself that you're right. The idea that we had to deny ourselves, take up the cross Mm -hmm. and follow him. Mm -hmm. And that did lead to me not listening to so many physical cues in myself when I was uncomfortable with something and Mm -hmm. I feel like man that could be a bigger conversation around a lot of things uh whether it's you know about neurodivergent things like anxiety panic attacks things like that because Mm -hmm. I could recall times like door-to-door evangelism where Mm -hmm. I was panicking in my body because I was so anxious and I had to push through for the Lord Mm -hmm. because that's Mm -hmm. what I was called, quote unquote, to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And in reality, I like can't breathe. (laughs) I'm like, I can't do this. Um, 
and it was there was more going on in me than just oh I'm doing it I, this is what it is to do it for the Lord like no there's you can listen to your body I'm sure there's conversation around uh, like sexual assault and mm-hmm. things like that when it comes to listening to your body and not mm-hmm. not paying attention to the cues that are going on um, I feel like this could be that could be a really large conversation around being yeah. able to honor what your body is telling you um, and mm-hmm. the disconnect that it creates in ignoring those bodily cues for so long um, mm-hmm. that you start to think of things that are happening as quote unquote normal and mm-hmm. All of a sudden, now you're looking back and you're like, wait a minute, I can listen to my body and what it's telling me and I can take care of it. And what you're saying is you don't have to stay stuck in trauma responses. However, be kind to yourself in where you're at and give yourself space and time for healing. And you don't have to already know how to cope and respond perfectly uh, before you are kind to yourself, I guess question that's going to lead me into a bit of a tangent do you remember who was the one in the old testament who fought god who was like wrestling god who was that do you remember no um i don't remember who exactly it was uh jacob so jacob wrestled god jacob lost um god is infinite god is immeasurable god is all of these sorts of things god was made flesh god made flesh in christ was capable of being murdered by the state Mm. So already there's this symbolism of God is everything. We are nothing, or like the flesh is nothing. And the like largest example of, well, just like the largest story in Christianity, I would argue is like the crucifixion and resurrection. So like, so if the crucifixion is possible, it was only possible because God was made flesh because how else would God be able to be killed? So there's already this like, I don't want to go so far as to say demonization of the flesh, but at least like significant like mortality and minimization yeah. of us in flesh. Yeah, that is true because the concept of Jesus being a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man was like the crux of it, right? Like he exactly. had all of our experiences, even death. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the only reason that that was possible was because he, you know, was made man and yep and i didn't realize how much i've probably internalized my body being like worthless useless um even bad i guess uh yeah is is essentially what you're saying yeah at at the same time of being taught that like your body is a temple you need to honor your body blah blah blah. your body is a piece of chewing gum or a flower like all of these sorts of things as well like a lock and key analogy here we go exactly like there's such dissonance and so much commentary on my flesh like on my physical being i don't know there's just a lot there yeah there really is and i mean I guess this could be a whole other topic of discussion, but I think that's tied Mm -hmm. to so many things like your self-confidence and Mm -hmm. uh, people with disordered eating and Mm -hmm. even purity culture. It's related uh, about, you know, Mm -hmm. what your body is and what it isn't and how when it's used a particular way, 
it means nothing. And when it's saved and untouched, it means everything. Uh, I think that that's a really interesting relationship that people have with their bodies in relation to their religion or uh, I guess the way that the religion views how we own Mm -hmm. and operate in our in our flesh any words of encouragement to neurodivergent friends Mm, words of encouragement to my neurodivergent besties um that it's okay to honor your own experience Mm. the wesleyan quadrilateral has four sections and each section is part of how we can view and know god Um, And one of those is, I forget the exact term, but one of those is about our own experience. Mm. Um, And oftentimes that is the the quadrant of the quadrilateral that is left off of religious conversations and like in the church. But it is like, it's, it's okay to honor yourself. It's okay to honor your body. It's okay to honor your own experiences and move accordingly, however that looks for you. That's great. And I think because everyone's experience, especially depending on the hard wiring of their brains, is mm-hmm. not only different in the experience, but perceived differently and therefore experienced differently, mm-hmm. depending on how your brain is hardwired, depending on the way that you have perceived and experienced things, you now function with those experiences differently based on how we internalize them. And even if there are people who went to the exact same church as you and heard the exact same messages and uh, were at the all of the same sermons, it doesn't mean that we experienced the exact same things. And I think that's really important for people to recognize, especially with neurodivergence, because just because we heard the same words doesn't mean we internalized the same content. So thank you, Lizzie. This was so great. I am so grateful for your perspective and that you are here and being so vulnerable. I feel like this is a perspective that many people need to hear uh, and not many people are talking about. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. This was lovely. And whether we see you at Heaven's Gates or Hell's Flames, doesn't matter. We're all the same. See you next time.